He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word this morning, let's just ask his blessing, his guidance on our study. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That as the psalmist said, it is in your light that we see light. And it is as we submit to your word and as we apply your word in our thinking and in our living, that you are the one who works in and through us. You produce spiritual growth, spiritual strength. We are edified. And as a result of that, we we grow and mature spiritually. Our lives are stabilized no matter what external circumstances there may be. And we grow to realize and experience that uh, joy that Christ, that is Christ that he shares with us. Now, Father, as we study today, help us to understand what the Bible teaches, that our understanding of what Christ did on the cross is clarified, and that we come to a greater appreciation for all that you have done for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, where we're going to study the last part of Ephesians 2.13, which is the phrase, the blood of Christ. We have been studying in Ephesians 2.11 through 13, so I want to read through those three verses again so we catch the uh, importance of these verses. And I want to remind you before I read them that in terms of Paul's flow of thought following Ephesians 2.10, verses 11 through 13 set the stage. They almost provide sort of a topical paragraph or a thesis paragraph for what he is going to develop through the rest of chapter 2 and down through chapter 3. I believe that's down to verse 21. And so this is the foundation. Therefore, remember that you... The you there refers to you Gentiles. You once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in flesh by hands. That at that time, that is, remember I taught that this is at that time prior to the beginning of the church. This is referring back to to the age of Israel when Gentiles did not have these privileges that God was giving to Israel that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, 
See, now in this church age, in contrast to the time before the beginning of the church age, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And the next five verses, 14 through 18, are going to explain how we were brought near, how Gentiles are brought near, and and together... He's going to use that phrase, together and both, that goes back to Ephesians 1, uh, 4, 5, and 6, that this shows that this is talking about this new man that is made, uh, that is created, unique word used only of God's work here in the New Testament. God creates this new man out of both. So it's something entirely new, something different from anything that has preceded it. Now, the way in which he does this is described by this last phrase in Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, what does this phrase mean? I've taught on this before in summary fashion. I've taught perhaps a long time ago in a more detailed fashion but I went back and redid or just started from scratch as if I had never studied this or taught this before and worked my way through this. And one of the things that we see in contemporary, contemporary theology, and not just contemporary theology and what is taught from pulpits, but also this goes back to some early misunderstandings and some early heresy in the church, especially in the medieval church. And so I just want to review about three things that are problems related to how people understand this phrase, the blood of Christ. First of all, some take this to be literal. That's basically the whole problem is they don't understand that this is a figure of speech. They take it to be literal. It's focusing on the literal blood, the red blood cells, the white blood cells, the plasma, everything. They look at the the blood as a physical entity that Jesus bled to death on the cross and that there is something mystical or miraculous about Jesus's literal blood. Now, if you ever watched the film that was produced in the 1950s on, the, on Ben-Hur, then you saw something of this at the end of the film. Ben-Hur was written by General Lew Wallace, who was a Union general during the war between the states, and later he was appointed as the territorial governor of New Mexico during um, during the time of the uh, Lincoln County Cattle Wars. He had quite an interesting life, but in there uh, he came to an understanding of the gospel, and he became a believer in Jesus Christ, and so he sat down, uh, he had initially started out like a number of other people who are well known in history have, and they sought to dis- and he sought to disprove Christianity. He sought to show that it was just a bunch of stories and that it had nothing to do with reality uh, whatsoever. Uh, the result was that he came to realize it was the absolute truth that there was a, an incredible amount of historical evidence for the existence of Jesus and that the evidence in the Bible was absolutely accurate. And so he wrote Ben-Hur as a sort of historical novel about a fictitious Jew by the name of Judah Ben-Hur 
and his life and coming to a realization of his need to trust in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And uh, over the course of the story, course of the film, uh, he gets crossways with the uh, Roman authorities. He gets sold into slavery. He goes to Rome, and while he's away and can't take care of his mother and his sister, they, uh, they become impoverished, and then they uh, in turn get, get um, leprosy. And they, when he returns, they have been isolated in a leper colony. So that sets the background. Then you sort of move forward and you get towards the end of the film and Jesus has been arrested, Jesus is taken to Golgotha, Jesus is put on the cross, and the darkness comes over the earth. And of course, Hollywood always assumes that nothing supernatural is going on, so the darkness must be a storm or a thunderstorm, and so it's cloudy, and so it starts to rain while Jesus is on the cross, none of which is of that is in the Bible. But as the rain pours down, and these poor people are at the foot of the cross or huddled together to try to avoid getting getting drenched. The, the rain washes the blood off of Jesus' body. It goes down and mixes with the water running down in rivulets along the little cracks and crevices of the hill of Golgotha, which didn't really exist. But it makes for a nice little story, and... Uh, Judah Ben-Hur's mother and sister are standing there. Or they have come to see what has happened with, with, with Jesus. And so the water that is mixed with the physical blood of Jesus uh, runs by their feet, and they are miraculously healed from the leprosy. So this is one view that many people have held, that it's the literal physical blood of Jesus that, uh, that saves people, and this has caused some problems. A second problem is that that this refers to a, is developed mostly in a Roman Catholic heresy that the, all related to Hebrews chapter 10, at the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10, that it's the literal physical blood of Jesus that is taken to heaven with him, that, that after the resurrection, are uh, so, in between the death and the resurrection, Jesus somehow collects his physical blood into a basin, and he ascends to heaven and uses that physical blood to cleanse the tabernacle uh, or the heavenly temple. And so this is a, another problem, of course. I have to ask the question, well, why does he have to cleanse the heavenly temple? And the answer is, well, Satan sinned in heaven, so there has to be a cleansing of sin in heaven. And that um, that that may may be true, but the literal blood is not what does it. It's as we'll see, it's the death of Christ is what provides cleansing in heaven as well as on earth. And a third area that is somewhat problematic for those who don't really understand that the Bible uses lots of figures of speech and lots of metaphor, which we use in many different ways, especially in our hymns, and using that imagery and singing words related to the blood of Christ isn't a problem. If it's good enough for the Holy Spirit to use the phrase the blood of Christ or the blood of Jesus numerous times in Scripture, then I think it's okay for us to use it in hymns and to sing it in hymns. And I know that there are some people who have had some hesitancy about certain hymns, and and it may not be just because of the imagery that's there, but sometimes the, the hymns are not uh, not the greatest. 
And there are two hymns that come to mind that really, really sort of exaggerate the imagery a little bit, but there's nothing wrong with that inherently if you understand the imagery and what it means to you. The first hymn that that may come to mind is the hymn, There's Power in the Blood. This hymn was written in 1899 by a man named Louis E. Jones, who went to Moody Bible Institute, and after that he worked for the YMCA. Now, you think of the YMCA as a place to go work out and a place to have physical activity, but back when it was originally founded, it was the Young Men's Christian Association. It was an evangelistic organization that was designed to provide a place where when men traveled, they could stay there, safe, clean environment. It wasn't go- you weren't going to run into, you know, drunks and ne'er-do-wells and prostitutes and everything else that you might find in a typical hotel. And so they could stay at a YMCA, and they would have Christian fellowship, and it was a solid, uh, solid ministry. And so he worked for a YMCA in Davenport, Illinois, another one for many years in Fort Worth, Texas, and also in Santa Barbara, where he eventually died. So if you think about the words for this hymn, the first verse says, Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Now, if you recognize, as we'll see in our study, that the blood of Christ is a metaphor for the death of Christ, that if you just change it to its literal literal meaning, there's power in the death, power in the death of Christ. So that makes perfect sense. There's nothing wrong with that once you understand the imagery. Then the next line, would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood or power in the death of Christ. And then the chorus is there's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb, in the death of the Lamb. Of course there's power. There's power for cleansing from sin, power to save us, and power to transform our lives. And so when you understand biblical imagery, and the Bible uses the phrase, uh, blood of Christ and blood of the Lamb several times, that there is nothing wrong with that uh, particular image. So I think we get a, hyper, a little hyper-legalistic if we, if we try to impose the bad theology upon that language, or upon that hymn. Then the other hymn that we run into is uh, the hymn, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood. Now, this gets, especially in the opening line, I think it's uh, the graphic imagery, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Now, we sang that. That was chosen by Alan Ross. We sang that to a different tune than the one we're used to at the at the Chafer Conference this last year. And when you look at it in terms of the the metaphor that's used, there's nothing wrong there. It, it's it's perfectly orthodox. I'm not sure that it is um, uh, pro- the the best hymn or the best language or the best poetry. But the focus is that it's the death of Christ that cleanses us from sin, washes all our sins away. And I have problems more with the uh, third verse. Um, but it, it, it seems to indicate a future time when we're all with the Lord till all the ra- ransomed church of God be saved. That would be phase three, to sin no more. That's not talking about phase two, to sin no more. 
that was written by William Cowper. Now, what's interesting is study the lives of some of these hymn writers. William Cowper uh, grew up in the in England in the 17th century. He was a poet as well as a writer of hymns. When he was a young man, he was institutionalized for depression, uh, which was difficult at that time. He was always plagued with depression, as some believers are. And he struggled all through his life uh, to apply the word of God to his depression, but he understood that God's grace was sufficient. That is just a test that some people have. Other people's sin nature run in different directions. Today, of course, the pagan human viewpoint is that all depression is is just uh, it just has to do with uh, chemistry, and you need to medicate it. Not understanding that there are spiritual issues involved, and that that's how you have to solve the problem. What in the world did Christians do? For 2,000 years or 1,900 years, or what did Old Testament believers do? For there were many that had all sorts of different, uh, what we would call today emotional problems, which just stem from living in the fallen world in a fallen body, and thus there were problems. But William Cowper was also a close associate of John Newton's, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. He wrote, uh, Cowper wrote a number of other hymns that were quite solid theologically. So there's nothing about his theology that would indicate that he was uh, putting some bad theology into the language of his hymn. He was also a strong supporter of of uh, the abolitionist uh, campaign and William Wilberforce. So he was uh, he he was a great man. But it's an interesting to study study his life. So some, those are some of the issues that people bring with them when they come to passages of Scripture because they have heard or they have been mistaught in particular areas. So the means by which the Gentiles, that's what it's talking about when Paul says, you who were once far off, he's not talking about every person being spiritually dead and far away. He's talking about Gentiles who were far off because, uh, based on verse 2, they did not have these five special privileges that God had given to Israel as his chosen people. And may I remind you that God did not um, God did not choose them because they were inherently better than others or because of anything in them. In fact, in Deuteronomy, he says that just the opposite was true. They were stiff-necked and rebellious and always a problem, and I didn't choose you because you were so good, and he chose them for his own special purposes. And so the Gentiles, I mean the Jews, at, by Jesus' time, the Pharisees and others had become so haughty and arrogant that they looked down on the Gentiles as those who were uncircumcised, and they thought circumcision saved them. And and Paul is telling them, no, you once were Gentiles and you didn't have access to these privileges of the Jews, but now you have something better. There's this contrast, but now in Christ, not now just because you're a Gentile, but now as a believer, as a saved Gentile, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you were kept away from Israel. There was a a separation there that we'll talk about more next time when we get into verse 14. You who once were far off have been brought near. 
How? By the blood of Christ. That phrase uh, introduced by the English preposition by introduces the way in which God brings the Gentiles near, where there is this new entity that will be developed starting in verse 14 in the body of Christ. The means is by the blood of Christ. So we have this uh, phrase in the Greek. It's the preposition in plus the dative of blood uh, of the blood. That always indicates instrumentality. And so I like to translate this by means of because it brings out that, that instrument. God uses the blood of Christ. Now, the preposition's important here because it's parallel in, in a concept to what we see back in verse 8. Verse 8 we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. There we have the phrase through faith that also expresses means, but it uses a different preposition. So you had two different ways that you could express this in Greek. One used a preposition in with a dative noun, and the second is dia with a genitive noun. Now, I have this up here on the screen because dia could also govern an accusative noun, in which case it's translated because. But it's very clear that this is not causal, it is instrumental. And by the time you get into Koine Greek, there is an overlap, a tremendous overlap, between in plus the dative and dia plus the genitive, so that they both expressed means and they were virtually synonymous. Uh, Some people who've had a lot of background in classical Greek uh, will tend to go to language 500 years earlier to try to find distinctions in what's going on in Koine Greek. But that's just as problematic as people who want to go back to uh, Shakespearean or Elizabethan English and try to impose meanings of words at that time on words today. Usage determines the meaning of a word or meaning of a phrase, and Koine Greek was very different from from classical Greek, even though some some idioms and some phrases continued uh, to be used, but people knew what they meant. But we, when we try to understand this phrase, by the blood of Christ, the first place we should look is immediate context. And the immediate context helps us to understand this. In verse 13, our passage, it's by the blood of Christ. In verse 16, we read that he, God, might reconcile. So reconciliation in verse 16 is identical or synonymous to the idea of bringing those far off and making them near. So we're talking about the same thing, just slightly different language, that he might reconcile them both to God, the both refers to Jew and Gentile, in one body through the cross. There's our phrase. It uses that dia preposition of uh, Ephesians 2.8, but it means the same thing. It has that communicates means or instrumentality that the instrument that God uses for reconciliation here is the phrase through the cross, whereas the idea of reconciliation in verse 13 is uh, by means of the blood of Christ. So it's expressing the same thing. So blood of Christ equals the cross. 
Now, when we talk about the that they are reconciled through the cross, let me ask you a question. Is that through the physical wood of the two pieces, the two, the two beams that were uh, connected together on which Jesus died? Is it talking about the literal wood of the cross? No. So right away we know, just in English, we know he's not talking about uh, the, the literal cross. We understand that because we know the language. We may not be able to tell what kind of figure of speech it is. We may not say, oh, well, that's some kind of imagery. We may not be able to express any of the technical uh, aspects of an idiom or figure of speech. But we know it's not the literal cross. We know it's what happened on the cross. Okay, that's the same thing that we understand when we see see the phrase blood of Christ. We know it's not the literal blood of Christ. It's what that represents. In verse 18, we read, for through him. So we've seen the phrase by the blood of Christ, then the phrase through the cross, and now through him. All three phrases refer to the same thing. They refer to what happens on the cross when Jesus died and when he paid the penalty for our sins. So these three passages indicate that the phrase through his blood, through the cross, and through him are synonymous. So through the blood of Christ is not talking about the literal blood of Jesus. It's talking about what that represents, just as the cross is not talking about a literal cross, but what it represents and what it represents is through him, what he did on the cross. Now, the second thing I want to point out is that there are seven key passages in the New Testament that use a phrase related to the blood of Christ. One, the first one is the one we've just looked at in Ephesians 2.13, but there are six, a total of six passages, excuse me, the other five are listed here. So first Timothy I mean first Corinthians ten sixteen is the passage I I read when we were uh, having our observance of the Lord's table a little while ago. And this is a great passage to look at. Again it's something a little different in the grammar of the Greek, but it means basically uh, the same kind of thing. You have Paul saying the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? We can translate that, is it not the fellowship of the blood of Christ? Now, the term blood of Christ, as I say, speaks of his death on the cross. We'll get into details about that in a little later. But it speaks of his death on the cross, and the communion, the fellowship that we have in the body of Christ is the result of, or it is sourced in, the death of Christ. That's the idea of the grammar here. The communion that comes from the death of Christ, the fellowship that we have comes from the death of Christ. And so the blood represents that, uh, the, the grape juice rather, the cup of blessing represents that blood. A second passage and there are a number of passages that refer to the blood in Hebrews. But in this passage, it uses the phrase, 
the blood of Christ. And in Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10, the writer of Hebrews is focusing on the value of the death of Christ, that he is a superior sacrifice. And that is also one of the senses in which the phrase, the shed blood, is used when you break down various meanings, that it has this emphasis on a sacrificial kind of death. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the key phrase is the blood of Christ, which cleanses your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. So it can't be referring to the physical blood of Christ because what it cleanses is something that is not physical. It's cleansing something that is, is spiritual. And it's talking about an act that occurs at the cross. Uh, so it's the death of Christ is the basis for cleansing your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now let me ask you a question. Does this happen automatically to everybody just because Jesus died on the cross? Is their conscience cleansed? No. That is what happens when you trust in Christ, when that aspect of his death is applied. We go back for imagery here to the first Passover. In the first Passover, it's the 10th plague in Egypt. The Israelites, approximately 2.5 to 3 million of them, are still slaves in Egypt. God has been commanding through Moses, the Pharaoh, to release his people. And each time Pharaoh says no, God sends another judgment, another plague, and each plague gets progressively worse than the one before. So the last plague is going to be that God will bring death on the firstborn in every household. Now that would apply to Pharaoh's household because he had a son, his firstborn. So this threatens everyone. It threatens the order. It threatens the succession of the of the throne of Egypt. And yet God is going to give a solution. That solution is going to be to select a lamb on the 10th day of the month. So this didn't happen real fast. They had time to do all of this. They're going to select a lamb on the 10th day of, the, of Nisan, They're going to observe that lamb for four days to make it sure it is without spot or blemish. And then they're going to sacrifice the lamb. Then they will take the blood of the lamb and they will apply it to the doorpost and the cross piece at the top, which is called the lentil. When they do that, of course, if you connected the dots, you'd have a cross. But the point I'm making here is it's not just having the blood of the lamb present in the house. It has to be applied the way God said to apply it. So there's another element that is inherent within the meaning of the blood of Christ, and that is that it's applied in the way God says that it is applied. And the way we apply it today is we trust in Christ's death on the cross as the means of our salvation. A third verse where we find this phrase is in 1 Peter 1, 2, that we are choice according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. Notice that it has to do with with our first we're saved, 
for the purpose of obedience, uh, that is good work, same as in Ephesians 2.10, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Now, where do we get this language, sprinkling of the blood of Jesus? Well, that was the language that was used in the sacrifices. So I pointed out that so far we've seen that there's a literal meaning of the blood in some passages. We've seen that there's a a figurative meaning where it refers to the death of Christ. And then we have this other meaning where it refers to not just the death of Christ, but it emphasizes the sacrificial aspect for what would happen in the Old Testament is when a, an animal was sacrificed, then the, um, the priest would take his finger and dip it in the blood and then sprinkle or splatter the blood onto the altar. So that's the imagery here. Again, it's the application of the death to in in the way that God said to apply it. First Peter one nineteen, that we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. It is the death of Christ that pays the penalty. Okay, so that's that's an understanding of of the imagery there in First Peter one nineteen, and then the last one, the sixth, the the fifth one, other than Ephesians uh, two thirteen is 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now let me remind you what this means. Walking is typically the metaphor for the living the Christian life, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light. In 1 John uh, chapter 1, there's a contrast between the believer who walks in the light and the believer who walks in darkness. Here we have the connection of the phrase walking in the light, that is the believer who's walking by the Spirit, walking with the Lord, has fellowship. That is, you're engaged in a spiritual partnership with one another. It's more than just getting together, having a potluck dinner at the church. It's more than Christian friends going out and having a good time together. It is focused on the where Christ is at the center of the discussion, the activity of what they are engaged in. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So it's the death of Christ that is the basis for ongoing cleansing from sin. And then see, some people take this and say, well, that means that I don't need to confess sin because the blood of Christ, the death of Christ continually cleanses me. Well, let's just assume that that's true. Then why would John in two sentences later say, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There, Here we have the basis for the cleansing, in 1 John 1, 9, we have the means for the cleansing, which is confession, and then we're forgiven of the sins we confess and we're cleansed from all other sins. Now, let's just talk about how this word is used. Word meaning always relates to word usage. So in the basic meaning of the Greek word for blood or bloodshed is the word hyma. Hyma is where we get the English word hema. It's a prefix, the hemoglobin, which refers to part of the blood, the hematoma when you have a bruise, bleeding under the skin, 
uh, a bleeder, someone who doesn't have clotting properties in his blood, uh, which is inherited, is a hemophiliac. And then we have the study of blood is hematology. So this all comes from the Greek word. It's used in a number of key places in the New New Testament, but it's basically a translation of the Hebrew word dam, which is the word for for blood in the Old Testament. So we'll first look at the background there. Then there were some, when you look at the Old Testament, there are 426 uses of the Hebrew word dam. So I'm not going to go through all of those. We'll be here till we all fall asleep many, many times. But the core verse, I think, for understanding this is Leviticus 17.11. In describing why the Israelites were not to drink blood or to have blood in the food, and that doesn't mean eating a rare steak, it it had to do with, with drinking blood. This was what the pagans did in order to participate in the, quote, life force of the, of the animal. It was a very pagan religious concept. So, in the law, Jews were prohibited from that practice, and then it's explained in verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your soul. So when blood goes against the altar, it's representing the loss of a life, for it is the blood that is life that makes atonement for the soul. So the physical death is a picture of a spiritual death. Spiritual death is that which occurred because of Adam's original sin. So there's a need for a sacrifice, but of course, writer of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. First time we have this phrase used in the Old Testament, it's figurative. Cain has killed Abel, okay? And it is described as... uh, the shedding of his blood. In Genesis 4.10, God confronts Cain and says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, is that literal? Does blood speak? Not in a literal sense. It's evidence of something. And so God is using this phrase, the, the blood of his brother, in a non-literal sense, to refer to the life of the brother. So it's interesting when you break down the various categories of meaning of the word blood, uh, figuratively, one is that, that blood represents life, and it also can represent the loss of life. And sometimes some of the passages, it's a little bit ambiguous as to which it is because those concepts are very close to one another. So God then goes on and and penalizes Cain for his murder. He says, so now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. Opening its mouth. See, there's another imagery there. And it just, it, it has the idea that the blood has been shed. It's, and literally the, the Hebrew word that is translated shed blood comes up later is a word that means to pour out. So it's, it, it's absorbed into the soil. That's the imagery that the, Earth has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood, his life. He's lost his life. Leviticus shows us a second meaning of the word. This emphasizes its sacrificial nuance. Leviticus 3, 2, and also in verse 8, use the phrase sprinkling the blood all around the altar 
and Aaron's son shall sprinkle the blood all around the altar. This is a picture of the sacrificial use of the word blood in terms of its uh, substitutionary uh, impact on these animal sacrifices. But a key phrase that we find is in Genesis 9-4, where, um, or 9-6 rather, where uh, God tells Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made, him, made man. Now this is the foundation for the uh, human judicial use of capital punishment. It's a brief verse doesn't go into a lot of detail at this point, but does explain why capital punishment is necessary is because the one who's been murdered is in the image of God, and so at some level, murdering somebody is a blasphemous act toward God. But the language to shed man's blood is language that speaks of a violent act. It is not limited to where there's actual literal bloodletting, for you can commit murder any number of ways through strangulation, through poisoning, through a blunt force trauma where there is very little blood shed. So this is a, a phrase that is used to describe a violent form of death. Interestingly, in Genesis thirty-seven twenty-two, Reuben, the firstborn of uh, Jacob's uh, sons, is, uh, gets involved in a discussion about with his brothers about what they're going to do with Joseph. They've all been jealous of Joseph, and they want to get rid of him. And they have uh, thrown him in a pit, and now they're arguing about whether or not to kill him. And so Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Don't kill him but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness. And then in verse uh, 22 of chapter 42, Genesis 42, 22, this is later when they're coming to Egypt and um, Joseph is is uh, putting them in a tough spot and Reuben is t- tells the brothers, well, didn't I speak to you saying don't sin against that boy and you would not listen, therefore behold his blood, because they still think Joseph is dead, his blood is now required of us. And their blood has more of the sense of life. His life's required of us because they think we, we took his life. So that, that shapes the, the language and the options for understanding it in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's used for physical, literal blood in phrases like flesh and blood. Speaking of humanity, Jesus used that phrase when he says in Matthew sixteen seventeen, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He asked uh, Peter, well, who do you say that I am? And Jesus and uh, Peter had said, you are the Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And so Jesus responded this way, well, you didn't learn this from men, from flesh and blood, from humanity, some human being. This was revealed to you by your father. But most of the other uses are figures of speech. It's used to refer to death in general. Matthew 23, 30, uh, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Their blood of the prophets referred to the death of the prophets that the uh, Jews consistently killed the prophets that God sent to them. 
It's used as a figure of speech for the death of a sacrifice when Jesus initiates the Lord's table. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. It's used again and again in this lengthy passage in Hebrews 9 and 12, talking about the better sacrifice of Jesus. Hebrews 9, 12, with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered into the most holy place. This is where you get this Catholic uh, heresy that Jesus took his literal blood with him to enter into the holy place in heaven. But what it means is, if you look at how the phrase is used throughout Scripture, it's on the basis of his death on the cross that he is able to enter into the holy place in heaven. He has fulfilled the Father's plan. So those are some of the passages, Hebrews 10:19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We have boldness to enter into heaven to the throne of God because of the death of Christ on the cross. And then I've already talked about that it is a basis for fellowship. It's used also to represent life. So in Matthew 27, 4, when Jesus is before Pilate, he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, an innocent life. Uh, It's used to describe the field of blood, which is where uh, Judas was buried. Uh, Matthew 27, 24, Pilate says, I'm innocent of the blood. I'm innocent of the life of this just person. So it has more the idea of death. Death and life, though, are very close close together. Now, as we uh, come to these other passages, this is what we learn about the blood of Christ, that the blood of Christ is that which provides us with redemption. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, that we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish. So the blood of Christ is that which pays the penalty. That's what redemption means, is to pay the price. And so it is Christ's death on the cross that pays the price, pays the penalty for sin. Now, it's not his physical death. It's his spiritual death. How do we know that? Because between 12 noon and 3 p.m., when God brought darkness on Golgotha, that is when Jesus finally cries out and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is during that time of darkness that he is screaming out because he's bearing the penalty for, for sin. When that ends, then John tells us when it had been completed, using a perfect tense of tetelestai, when that had been completed, then Jesus said, to Telestai, it had been completed. So he uses that word twice to show that this is now paid in full, and it is paid in full before Jesus dies physically. So it's his spiritual separation from the Father judicially that pays the penalty for sin. Romans 3.25 tells us, that God set forth, whom it was referring to Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, as a satisfaction by his blood. The idea there is Jesus satisfies the judicial demands of the Father on the cross, and so God's justice is satisfied by Christ's death on the cross, and that through faith it is applied to us. So again, we bring out the idea of blood of Christ has as an implicit meaning the application of the blood as God has described. 
Not only are we redeemed, First Peter, we are uh, propitiated, Romans 3. We are justified by his blood in Romans 5, 9. His death provides the basis for justification as our sins are imputed to him. When we trust in his death on the cross, his righteousness is imputed to us and we are declared justified. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, it is the, we have the fellowship that is ours from the source of his death. So we have this new fellowship with God and with one another. And Ephesians 1, 7 connects his blood to redemption and forgiveness. In him we have redemption through his death, the forgiveness of sin. So I'm translating it that way to get the literal sense of the imagery. So in our passage, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by means of the blood of Christ. So that shows this huge difference between what we have today and what, what preceded the death of Christ on the cross. There is now uh, propitiation, there's justification, there's redemption and the forgiveness of sins, and there is this new entity, the body of Christ, where Jew and Gentile are together both in the body of Christ as a new entity. And then we have boldness to enter into heaven. So we can go to the throne of God in prayer because Christ is our high priest because his death opened the way. And then last, Colossians 1.20, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace, that is reconciliation, through the blood of the cross, through the death of the cross. So we have reconciliation and redemption and propitiation and justification and forgiveness. All are ascribed to the death of Christ and now are being put together into the body of Christ. So this opens a door to a huge teaching of Scripture the importance of that death of Christ. It is a substitutionary spiritual death. It is not the physical death, though that is very important for other reasons, but it is his spiritual separation from the Father that pays the penalty for sin. So we'll come back next time and get into a really great section dealing with Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together this morning to study your word, to have our understanding of Christ's death on the cross expanded, helping us to understand some of the errors that are present in the world and in theology today, as well as understanding better the truth of your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening today to this message, or in the future, that they would come to understand that every person needs to trust in Christ as Savior for eternal life. That is how we apply the death of Christ to our lives. That's how we apply the blood of Christ, is by trusting him. As Jesus said, we eat his flesh, we drink his blood, not literally, but we are accepting him. We are applying his person and his work to our uh, to our own experience, to our own lives. We're trusting in him and him alone for our salvation. 
Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to further understand this and remember it and apply it in Christ's name. Amen.